This morning is Sunday. It is November 26th of 2006. This morning is... Our message is called Just Jew It. I didn't mispronounce it. You know the Nike slogan, Just Do It? Now, people that hear this will give me a chance so that they'll listen long enough not to brand me anti-Semitic and... Uh, Refuse to go watch the movies I make later in life. Teasing, I'm not going to make any movies. Keith might. We might give Keith some scripts and he make them, but I, I'm not. Just do it. One of the anthems of our ministry is about getting into the Hebraic culture that birthed the gospel. Jesus Christ could have appeared. Jesus the Christ. Christ not his last name. Jesus the Anointed One, the Messiah, could have appeared at any time. And yet God called the time the fullness of time and chose for him to appear. This was in first century Galilee. And not just Galilee, but in all the nations of the world in the nation of Israel. This was for a specific reason. I am firmly convinced, I preach constantly, and you guys are probably mad at me for saying it so often, that when we divorce this Scripture, when we divorce our faith, when we divorce our lifestyle from the culture that God gave us the Word in, We've made a mistake. We've cut ourselves off from a vivaciousness that is in the Scripture, from a fullness. We miss something when we just look at this as Americans or when we just look at it through Greek eyes because the New Testament was preserved in Greek for us. And one of the things that we are always doing is trying to rediscover the Hebraic roots. How would Jesus have said it? How would He have done it? Matthew and I were talking about He was due on his piece of paper. I'm sure he was attention to what I was saying, but he was doodling on the piece of paper and he drew a Star of David with a very Jewish-looking man in the center and a shofar for a Nike-like swoosh symbol. And it said, just do it. And we were joking about that. It was purely jest. But I started to think about, what does that mean, just to do it? If you were going to imitate the Jews, if you were going to imitate something from their lives, what would be the most prominent thing that you could imitate from biblical Judaism? And then our message was born. I want to tell you a little bit about this other thing, though. Nike, right? You all know, Nike was a Greek god. Did you know that? No? Some knew it, some didn't. And not a god, but a goddess. Think about that next time you're wearing those tennis shoes around. Watching the commercials and wearing the shirts. Guys, we can't escape it. It's everywhere. I mean, if, if you do your best to avoid anything in the world tainted by idolatry... You know, you can't live in your house because the sheetrock was put together by a Buddhist. You can't drive in your car because, you know, a part was made in India. I, it doesn't work. We're to be in the world and not to be of its same substance. We're of divine substance. But in Greek mythology, Nike, and by the way, it's pronounced Niki in Greek, like E, means victory. This was the goddess of victory, and she personified triumph. She was the daughter of a warrior god and... The warrior god was married to a goddess named uh, Styx that was of hatred. And her sister was Kratos, which meant strength. She had another one named Baia, which was force. Another one named Zealous, which was rivalry. Come on, how would you like to have those for brother, sisters, mother, and father? Talk about a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Why on earth would the ancient world have chosen these as their gods? Because the whole worldly system is an attitude. The whole worldly system teaches you, you do it to other people before it gets done to you. He who has the most gold makes the rules. All of those worldly truthisms that they spit out all of the time. 
One of the things that is neat about this is this goddess of triumph, this goddess of war and victory, appeared sometimes in a chariot. She was the charioteer for the goddess god Zeus. This is where we get that swoosh symbol of Nike. And what was happening is that when this American company was formed by a guy named Phil Knight, the first guy that he brought on was a fellow named Jeff Johnson. And oddly enough, Jeff had a dream. And in his dream, he saw this goddess. At least this is how he reports it. He comes back, he tells Phil about it, and they're excited. They found the emblem, the logo, the slogan for their business. The idea was triumph, victory, just do it. Right? That's what that means when you see it on the symbol. I began to think about that as it contrasts with the kind of faith that we have. So often when you ask a Christian, hey, are you a Christian? Well, yes. I believe that blah, 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 blah. Right? That's Matt's ringer on his phone. Blah, 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 blah. Well, I believe, and it really doesn't matter what belief, what you believe, right? Let's say we start with point A, okay? Are you a Christian? Yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We begin to divide up into different churches by the various things that we believe about Jesus being the Son of God, right? And that's where we get our denomination. I meant denominations. I may have been intentionally mispronouncing that for years, but mercy trumps over judgment and you'll love me anyway, right? One of the things that we could learn from the world is not this dog-eat-dog attitude, not this idea the man with the gold makes the rules, not having rivalry for our siblings, but we do need to learn an attitude that puts our faith into practice. And as I began to examine Judaism, I found something. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 1. If we were going to take a slogan for Christianity and say, just do it, there's a thought that Paul reveals. Paul was one of the cross-cultural missionaries that the world had ever seen. Jews evangelizing people to Judaism. That's an often overlooked fact about Acts. But have you noticed everywhere Paul goes in the book of Acts, there are synagogues he can preach in? How'd they get there? Well, the Jews had gone out and they had been forming quorums groups of ten and forming synagogues everywhere they went. The Jews were doing their best with the law of God to display the character of God to the world. This is revealed in Jesus' words too. He says, hey, you guys make twice the... your disciples are twice the sons of hell you already are. Well, where were their disciples? People came from all over the world to Jerusalem three times a year. There were Jews from almost every nation on the planet present at Pentecost because they had been out witnessing. They'd been out showing those things. But among these Messianic believers, the first Christians who were Jewish and believed in the Jewish Messiah, there had to be a group of people who would take this completed faith, this idea that the Jewish Messiah that had been waiting, that we had been waiting for, had come. And one of the first guys to do this successfully was Paul. So Paul had a very, very good handle on what we would call cross-cultural missionary work. He knew what it was to be a Jew... But he had grown up in a Greek city, and so he knew what it was like to live among the Greeks. This made him particularly well-suited to get out and understand both groups of people and persuade people everywhere of who Jesus was by what he did. Would you all agree with that? If not, throw a Bible up here. I'll duck. Well, in 1 Corinthians, based on his extensive knowledge and at this point a couple missionary journeys, look what he says in the 20th verse. 
Y'all there? Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. In Paul's missionary journeys, he had learned that Jews tended to ask, do something, show us, give us a sign. We've heard your words, we want to see some actions that back it up. While Greeks, by the way, most of us descend from Greek cultures, would say, hey, let's talk about this. Does it make sense? Is it reasonable? Talk to us about point upon point and precept upon precept. We want to understand it in a purely philosophical realm. Saints, that's what the church suffers from today. If we were going to do something and we could just do it, it would be a return to an emphasis on what someone does rather than what they say. Come on, somebody talk to me about politicians. Do you like them? Why is everybody laughing? Do you like them? No, why? Because they say one thing and do another. Isn't that the criticism for all politicians? And yet how political are most churches and most Christians? How political have you been in your life? We know the right things to say, but do we do them? We come in this church, we know when the first song plays, it's time. If you're of a charismatic background, you raise the hands or you begin to clap. If you're one of the other backgrounds, maybe you kneel. Maybe you begin to do recited readings. We know what we should say. We know how to go through the motions. But Judaism talked about something that went deeper than that. By the way, some other stories that you could read that would help drive this point home. Look at Paul's missionary journey in Athens. This is in Acts 17. Where did he find men? found them in their Oropagus. And what were they doing? This was Mars Hill. It was a place of foreign gods where they could sit. And Luke wrote, discuss the latest ideas because this is all they did all day. And they listened to Paul. And they listened to him make point after point after point until he talked about Jesus raising from the dead and they didn't understand why it needed to be done. Then they shut down the meeting because it didn't make sense to their logical mind. Paul had, had extensive experience with both Jews and Gentiles and he determined that the Gentile fault was the logical mind. We will spend all day talking about doctrines. We'll make them our masters. Well, I can't fellowship with so-and-so because they put promise in the Trinitarian doctrine. Well, I can't fellowship with so-and-so because he says I need to do this to be saved. What happened to just living out Christ's ideals? I have found out that it's possible to have two people who think very, very differently on a subject dwell together in perfect harmony and let God sort it out. I was witnessing to a man in the Armenian quarter of Israel and I began to talk to him about Jesus. And he told me that the thing that he liked most about our New Testament, and I was very surprised he had read it, was the passage where Paul began to speak and said, to those who are perishing, this gospel's veiled. 
because the prince of this world has veiled it to them. He said, that's the passage I like the most. I said, I'm sorry? What do you mean? He goes, let's just agree between you and I this moment that if I don't see what you're talking about, it's only because it's veiled to me. And then let's pray that over time God would remove the veil. And if you're wrong, you'll see it. If I'm wrong, I'll see it. But let's not let this separate us. I thought, my God, is that wisdom. Now, I'm not telling you to water down the gospel. I'm not trying to change your creed. I think they're important. What I'm trying to do is not even build a sense of unity. I don't do anything by consensus. In fact, I'm more likely to find out what the group wants to do and pick the opposite. That's in my nature. But what I'm trying to do is say, let's put an emphasis on what we actually do rather than sitting back with our hands folded and our legs crossed asleep on our salvation in the pews, criticizing what everyone else believes. How ridiculous is that? Turn with me to James 1. One of the things that I am very happy about in this church, which is really still in its infancy, and I hope that doesn't offend anybody that I say that. I'm the pastor and I say it, so it shouldn't offend you. Our church is in its infancy. There are a lot of things that we're still developing. You don't walk through the door and get a schedule of places that you just plug yourself into. Well, here's the ministry for the 37 through 37 and a half year old singles with already two children. You know, we don't have that stuff. We may or may not develop some of it. But one of the things that I am noticing in you that is admirable, it's praiseworthy, it's something that is worth pointing out. As I happened to be working on a car yesterday, six or seven people come by and they all stop and they want to help. Everybody is looking to put your faith into practice. This morning when a brother saw me, one of the first things that he did was apologize for not having been able to stay there longer because he had a duty somewhere else. That is admirable. Christianity does not pass somebody broken down on the road and say, oh, well, maybe a Samaritan will come by and help them. This is not real faith. Real faith produces in you an obedience to the call of God. He said, well, Jesus didn't, just didn't tell me to do that. understand. I believe in being led by the Spirit. How often are you led to do something that you are absolutely opposed to do and won't hear, though? When you walked into Walmart on Friday, day after the sale, what were you thinking about buying? Right? doesn't matter. You were thinking about buying something. That's why you're there, right? Did it cross anybody's mind, though, that you weren't there to get that 24-volt drill for $39? There may be a soul out there who was dying and needed something that you had. I want us to encourage, I want to encourage us to do more and more what we're already beginning to do in our, in our infancy, which is be open to the Spirit to do something. I want to be honest with you. I don't care what you believe. I really don't. I think that if I teach you who you are in Christ, the right belief structure will come. I really do believe that. If I teach you about your high calling, I think all of the doctrines will work themselves out. I think that they're put here to aid us, to aid in our understanding, not to become demagogues to us and divide us and separate us and make us masters of our own intellect. I don't think that. And I think that the more that we get open to God moving and looking to do something rather than hear a good word or preach a good word, more than be entertained, I think we will see God moving in our midst. Can you all say amen to that? In First James, First James, the first chapter of James, there's a second James that didn't make it into this Bible. 
<laughs> Look at this. Verse 18. He chose to give us birth. Guys, I emphasize this every week. You were chosen by God. He chose to give you birth. You were not an accident. Come on, have you never as a child thought, hmm, when I look back at mom and dad's life, I wonder, was I planned? <laughs> Did you have a sibling that told you you were a mistake? <laughs> yeah, and told you there was no tooth fairy or Santa Claus? You were chosen by God. It doesn't matter the circumstances that you entered the world. There are no mistakes. Look at life. It cannot occur unless God sanctioned it. Say, but what about this and what about that? Turn off the Greek for a little while, okay? Let's talk about function. God has birthed us for a purpose. You see a life? There is a purpose for that life. There is not a life on this planet, not one, that does not have the divine imprint of God on it, the author of that life. Does the Bible not say it's the author of life? That means if He put life in something, He authored it. He began it. He started it, and there is a purpose for it, a function. Our church is about developing that function, what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to carry out your faith. It is not at all about sitting in one of these chairs and learning things to impress your friends. I want you to do things that impress your friends. Would your friend be happier? Let's say your friend is Craig. That's a big stretch for all of you, I know, right? Your friend is Craig. Is Craig happier that you walk up to him and say, Craig, you'll never guess. I found out that the Hebrew word kavana means, not nervous, kavana means the intention of your heart. Now, the moment you tell Craig that, he's laying under a car holding a 44-gallon fuel tank, straining with all that he has. Is he happy about the revelation you have or does he want you to help him get that fuel tank off of his chest? And that's what Christianity has taught us to do, saints. It's taught us to walk around and talk about this box that we've all put God in. We believe these 14, 13, 10, whatever points, this is what we call God. If you talk about anything outside that box, we're mad at you, you're a cult, you don't fit in our own group. What we want you to do is continually tell us new things that are really the same old junk in this box in exciting and inventive ways. Guys, I want to destroy the whole box. I want you to surprise people on the street. I want you to pay for people's gas who never met you. I want you to cut people's grass. I want you to move people. I want you to walk up to the widow in the supermarket and pay for her groceries. Say, but we have a church to support. Oh, yeah, I understand that. And if we're not about God's business, what kind of church do we have? I want us to look for ways to put faith into actions. I want to just do it. Watch this. He chose to give us birth through the Word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. You should feel special. Out of everything that He created on the earth, He chose you. He brought you into being for a specific purpose. He wants to hold you up as a first fruit. A first fruit is that thing that says, wow, Steve's the first fruit. He's the pattern. Every harmonica player that will ever come in this world or in this church will follow this pattern. He's held us up as a standard that people should live by. That's what it means when you call yourself Christian. You're living according to the standard of Christ that was perfect. So people should imitate you as you imitate Christ. This is what we see in the church. You can't imitate somebody by what they believe. How do you know when somebody's imitating you? When they begin to do what you do. 
My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. We've never taught a chosen frozen in here. Anything but. I have never clung to that doctrine that teaches you, walk an aisle, get wet, and if it was sincere when you did that, go out, rape, pillage, murder, it doesn't matter. Because I've never seen it in the Word. Aside from that, if we make that doctrine our master, what does it breed? Apathy, lethargy, greasy grace, a license for immorality. This teaches us a principle. You were chosen for a purpose. You were supposed to be the first fruits. Because of that, rid yourself of all pollution. Get rid of it all so that you can do what God called you to do because this thing that He planted in you, this thing that He's entrusted you with, it can, can, C-A-N, can save you. It means it has the ability to. Does that make you feel less secure? Good, good. Romans teaches us that the Spirit of God is what will make you feel secure. My little boys, when they're doing wrong and they know it, are they just absolutely assured of Dad's kindness in the moment? No, probably not. What brings that assurance? Doing what is right. Then they can smile. They can be happy. They can walk in full assurance knowing that Dad is happy. We have a Heavenly Father. Our relationships on earth teach us about our relationships in Heaven and vice versa. It can save you. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Just do it. James was a Hebrew book. James was a Hebrew man. James taught Hebrew concepts. In fact, James was probably meeting in a synagogue. you know how we know that? In the next chapter, when a man comes into one of your meetings and he's poor, don't have him sit on the floor and have the rich guy in the best seat. You know what the word for me there is? Synagogos. Everywhere else in the Bible is translated synagogue. But our New Testament gave this to us in English as the word meeting. You know why? Because the translators had an anti-Jewish bias that they weren't aware of. They said, well, James is a Christian. He's not meeting in a synagogue. This word can mean meeting place. So let's translate it meeting place. The same translators, though, in the book of Revelation, when they see the word synagogos, and it could mean meeting, saw it in a negative context and translated it the synagogue of Satan. Do you think that the framework that you walk into this world with doesn't affect the way that you believe? Of course it does. So is our faith really going to be about the particulars of what we believe? Or is it going to be about what you do? We're going to share some parables with you today. Some very direct, straightforward, hard-hitting parables. And you're going to find out something. Jesus never asked people what they believed. When the judgment seat of Christ appears, when there's a separation of sheep and goats, when people stand before the great white throne, you do not hear the question, what was your creed? To which denomination did you belong? How on earth did you explain the Godhead? And when you explained the Godhead, did it have commas between them? Or did you say it was all one? Were you a subscriber to the Athanasian Creed or not? You don't ever see any of that. You know what you see? Jesus said, what did you do? What did you not do? Our faith is useless if it does not produce the deeds that God desires. Watch this. Do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Who would be deceiving you in that case? 
Is it the devil right there telling you lies about God? No. The lie is one that you've received. I have appeased God by hearing His Word. Come on, saints. If that doesn't resonate, then something's wrong with us. Are you telling me that when we look around us, when you look into the mirror of the Word at your life, that you're not better at hearing the Word than doing it? Billy Graham said that America had received enough weak, dead Christianity to inoculate itself from the real thing, and Billy was right. We turn on the TV and there's preaching everywhere. There's churches everywhere. How is it that there's thousands of members of of churches within a few square blocks right here? And I know in this neighborhood, there are shut-ins that can't paint their own house. That are receiving fines from the neighborhood association because they can't cut their grass. How is that? Because the followers of Christ don't act like Christ. That's how. Because we are a pretty shoddy job of imitating the king. We've accepted that he's perfect, that we're flawed, and we just can't do it. It's enough to believe that he did it. Saints, that's a faith that will not save you. I want to tell you that now. Say, so, well, how much do I have to do to be saved? Get into Charles Stanley's whole book here, if you like. I'm not telling you that you do anything to be saved. I'm telling you that because you trust God, because you believe him, because you believe he's the example, he chose you and made you the first fruits, that belief should produce in you something. You should want to imitate Him. And that one is evidence of the other. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away immediately and forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not does it one time, continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. I want you to get this. You were chosen. You were chosen to do what the Word says. Not just to do it once, but to continue doing it. And when you do that, the last verse I just read you said you'll be blessed in what you do. The Word is a handbook for life. It teaches us not what to believe, but how to live. For instance, if you're corrected, what does the Word teach you to do? To defend yourself, right? To stand flat-footed and fight. To jaw back just as much as you've been jawed at. To find fault with the person correcting you. That's what the Word teaches, right? Why are you all shaking your head? Because the Word teaches you that it's a kindness. It's an oil to your head. Indifferent to whether or not it's right. It's an expression of love. If Brad corrects me, and by the way, I was corrected last week. I preached all about it. You'll know when I get corrected because I bring it up from the pulpit. I love it. I'm thankful for it. Truthfully, somebody's been in my church the least amount of time did it, and I thank them for it. It's an act of love. When you're corrected, you know what the proper response is? Thank you for loving me. I'll pray about that and see if I can implement it. Right? You know how we say, fake it until you make it with your smile? Do it with correction too, saints. Think about it. Why is he talking about correction? Because what a hard area to implement, right? We all believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but when I walk up to you and say, Nick, quit doing what you're doing, it's sin. Boy, doesn't something just rise up in you that's not the Word that was planted in you? Uh huh. What if I do it publicly? What if I do it and your wife turns to you and goes, I told you! But we need to decide now what's going to govern our lives. What are you going to accept as the standard? Well, this is the way I was raised. 
Good, you were raised in sin. Let's get in righteousness. We need to decide to do what the Word says. When He says mirror, you know what He's talking about? The Jews went to this labor every time they sacrificed an animal. And the labor was made of bronze. You know why bronze? Because it symbolized judgment. So they would go look into the perfectly polished bronze labor and they would see themselves with blood all over their face. Blood all over their face. What was that supposed to tell them? You're guilty and you need to change. You know what the problem with this was? They did it all of the time. And what you do, it becomes dry and mundane and boring. So it was easy to walk up, blood all over your face, look in, wash it off, and walk off. Just like these church services are easy to just wash right off. I mean, if I say, what did I preach last week? How hard do you have to think about it to remember? If I say, what did I preach last week and the week before? Could you do it? Well, hold on. Do we have a Wi-Fi connection here? It's on the Internet. How much are we applying this stuff in our lives? We don't want to quote Maximus, but we're going to. Are you not entertained? (laughs) I mean, is that the point here? Do we just come in here to be entertained? Or at some point, are we going to get energized about what we're doing and put this into practice, especially when it's hard? Anybody can do it when it's easy. Hey, go throw a feast for your friends. Great. What does Jesus say? Throw a feast for your enemies. I want a kind of application of the Word when it is hard. That's what makes you Christians. It does not make us a Christian to sit in here any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Now, you know this. How many times have you heard that, Right? Hard to even get a chuckle out of that one. Keith Green did that in 1982. He put that in a song, right? And he didn't originate it. We heard this stuff until our ears need to be circumcised again. Our hearts need to be rent, and we need to think about putting into practice the King's Word. How dare us let the living Word become dry and dull. Look what he says in the second chapter, then we're going to move on. When I tell you to turn to the second chapter of James and tell you we're talking about just do it, we're talking about deeds, is there anybody in here that doesn't know what we're going to read? Probably not. You probably all have some idea. And yet these words are charged with the Spirit of God. They were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of producing change in your life. How hard-hearted do we have to be and how callous do we have to be to sit in here and not let these prick our hearts. Oh, well, we don't want to become emotional. By all means, become emotional. I don't know whoever tried to remove it from the church. That was wrong. I see Jesus laughing, crying, leaping, excited. If he'd wanted a bunch of Vulcans for Christians, you know, a bunch of people devoid of emotions, he would have only called white Icelandic people. (laughs) I'm sorry, that's probably not even true of them. Steve says no, and I bet he's been there. He wants us to embrace, to engage the text, to begin to put into practice these things in life. And it's better when it hurts the most, saints. You want to find the heart of God? Sacrifice. Sacrifice for His benefit. Give up your very most precious thing for Him. So, what? Are you talking about materialism? I want to tell you the truth. Golly, make sure nobody has anything sharp. You know what your most precious thing is? Your pride. But I was right! So what? So was Jesus. They killed him. But I'm being falsely accused. I'm slandered. What was Jesus not? They slander him? Good. Good. You're being a follower. They're treating you the same way they treated the Master. But I was slandered by my own people. That's right. So was he. I spent years complaining about all this stuff. 
I know a little something of what I'm speaking. If there's a way to stand, I've done it. Pastor? Oh, yeah. yeah. I preach about weakness. I'm telling you where I struggle right now, even now, because I suspect that you're just like me. Look at James 2. Is that okay? Y'all want to go to James 2 or not? Natalie wants to go, so we'll do it for her. It's like a wedding gift. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but have no deeds? What is that called? That's a rhetorical question. What are you supposed to hear yelling at you out of the text? What good is it if a man claims to have faith and has no deeds? What's the response? Not good at all, right? Isn't that the response? Uh, all right, well, Craig and Charlotte think that's the response. Does anybody else think that that's the response? Yeah. What good is it if a man claims to have faith but have no deeds? It's not good at all. That's the rhetorical response. Can such faith save him? If somebody says, I believe, is that enough to save him? That's the question James is asking. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? What's the rhetorical answer? No, not good at all. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Guys, I don't want a dead faith. When faith does not produce obedience to the... When faith does not inspire you to the point of action, it does not qualify as biblical faith. Intellectual assent is not faith. You say, well, he's talking about somebody else. I'm always talking about somebody outside the house, and I'm talking about you. In what area of your life have you said you trusted God, but your actions do not show that? Wow, what are we going to do about it? We're going to do something differently. That's what we're going to do. If every time you open the bills it causes you anxiety, then open your Bible when you open the bills. If planning events stresses you out and your hair's falling out like mine, well, then maybe you should open the Word and get a brother and sister in there and worship. Do what it takes to do something differently. We need to become outward focused. Christianity is supposed to be centrifugal. You want to find a sad, lonely Christian, somebody full of pity, with no fruit on the vine, you'll find a self-centered Christian. That's why everything that we do is encouraging you to look to the needs of everybody else before your own. He said, but I was doing that. Well, good. Do it more. That's all we're saying. Do it more. We're trying to set that example. I don't always do it well. In fact, sometimes I do it pretty poor. My wife's right there to tell me every time. But this is what we want to create because this is a real faith. Is that what y'all want? You want to re- Because you know what? I want to be honest. At this stage in the church, we have a decision to make. We can go very traditional at this point. Would not be hard at all at this point to build the building and put some pews and stained glass in it. We could develop a formal statement of faith, generic enough to appeal to most people, just edgy enough to keep some of you happy. We could talk about what is in that box all of the time in new and inventive ways, and I bet I could be entertaining enough to keep you happy for a little while. Is that what you want to do? Or would you like the kind of revolutionary faith that shakes the world that did not think that they had a hope in the world and were considering blowing their head off and makes them saints and apostles and teachers of the Word. 
The only place you won't find acceptance is among the religious people. Everywhere else, they will love you. They'll cry when you walk into the room because they know that you care about them. That's the kind of power and faith that I want to see. I don't care what the religious people think. They're critical of everybody. I'm just trying my best not to be one of them. And there's a natural drawing in me to go that way all of the time. I'd call it the Pharisee within, but uh, I think that gives the Pharisees a bad rap. I think we're something worse than that, honestly. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. How many of you believe that your life belongs to Jesus? How many of you believe your children's lives belong to Jesus? So you'd take one up on a mountain, raise a knife over it? Because that's the kind of faith he's talking about right now. Uh, My life belongs to Jesus. So you'll clean toilets for him? You'll be humiliated? How about strip, beaten, putting stocks right out here in the middle of the street? Somebody whipping you with a belt. Would you do it? Oh, it's easy to say, isn't it? And you won't give up your pride at a party? Won't give up your pride with your spouse? Won't give up your pride with your brothers and sisters? You won't set aside the thing that you want to do for somebody else's benefit? How is it we say we give our lives? You want to talk about guilty? I'm guilty. What I want to do is fix a car. I've got five people sitting in here watching football. But I'm outside fixing a car, figuring that I need to do that, right? About halfway through it, I realized, no, what I needed to do was to lay down what my desire was for the day and go inside with those five guys and sit around and talk with them. So what are we going to do about that? I'll find fault with them. That's what I'll do. Why are they inside watching football and not out here helping me fix a car? Isn't that what a religious spirit does? It points at everybody else but yourself. It can't see you in the mirror. All it is is a magnifying glass for everybody else's life. I want to be different. You want to be different? How about next time it not be my car? Let's go fix Craig's. That's a different spirit, isn't it? That's a different spirit. It's a whole lot less cloudy when you're doing something for somebody else. Sorry, Craig, I can't be there to help you fix the car. I need to spend time fellowshipping with the guys watching football. But if it was my car and I had to be at work the next day, well, then that's not a decision, is it? Show us your faith by what you do. Show us your faith by the smile on your face even when somebody's being ugly to you. Show us your faith in all that you do and you'll be different than the rest of the world, I promise. I want to read something then I've got to get to Exodus because that's what's fun. Show me your faith without your deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. That answers the question of intellectual assent. Once and for all, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. The demons called Him the Son of God. Well, I believe that He died and rose again. Well, so do they. They watched. What do you do? We know what they do. They do horrible, wicked things. What do you do? Well, I don't do horrible, wicked things. Is that enough? Jesus called you to bear fruit and fruit that would last. He didn't call you to sit here and take up soil and sunlight and water. I think that message was called sit and soak. Y'all remember it? A couple of you do. Good. You foolish man, do you want that evidence? Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our aunt <laughs> useless? How about that? Walk up to a Christian and say, friend, I love you. And this is so hard for me to say. But the kind of faith you practice is useless. 
you better hope you were wrong. They're going to palm you right across the face. Or lash at you verbally, hate you with their tongue. How would you know you were wrong, though? Thank you so much for caring about me, brother. I want desperately to have a real faith. Pray with me. Help me get stronger. I never looked at it that way. I didn't realize that anybody could perceive that out of this situation. Then not only would you know you were wrong, you're both edified. That's the mark of a Christian. Show me Jesus defend himself. Show me that. You'd be reading out of a Mormon Bible. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? This is another rhetorical question, isn't it? And what is the answer? Yes, he was. You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. His faith was what? Completed. Is intellectual acceptance a part of faith? Yes, it's just not all of it. To bring it to completion is when you actually perform what you say you've accepted. I love this. Never saw this before this morning. I want to share it with you. And the Scripture was fulfilled that says God believed Abraham, or Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You have a footnote. What's your footnote? What verse is that? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What? Genesis 15, 6. All right, now my math is not good, so y'all help me here. We got Genesis right here, 15, 6. This is when God said that Abraham believed him and it was credited as righteousness. James said that that statement made here was fulfilled. When? Well, that comes in around Genesis 22, when he offers Isaac. The statement about Abraham believing God and it was credited to him as righteousness, James treats as prophetic. <laughs> He's accepted God's Word is true, and he will prove it, and we will look back in retrospect and call that faith. How do you know whether somebody believed the message? By how they responded to it. Abraham heard the Word, and what did he do? He did it. But it was not enough for him to hear it. He was not declared righteous for hearing it. He was declared righteous when what he believed in Genesis 15 saw fruition in Genesis 22. The two had to work together is what James is teaching. Now Paul goes a whole different direction with this to teach something else. People have wondered, are they contradicting each other? Not at all. Not at all. Is it enough to have faith only? Yes, if it's real faith, because real faith will always produce obedience. J.J., your house is on fire. Okay, thank you, brother. He sits in the lazy boy. J.J., your house is on fire. Okay, brother, I believe you. Thank you. Wouldn't you begin to wonder whether or not he believed me? When do you know without a doubt he believed me? When he gets up, gets his wife, and hauls it right out of the house, huh? We're all sitting in the lazy boy so much saying, I believe you, God, I believe you, I believe you, I believe you, I believe you, but we're not responding to the message. I want to be different. Turn with me to Exodus. Exodus 3. Oh, yeah, that brother's getting fast. Tabs. Whatever it takes, man. Whatever it takes. In Exodus 3. I want you to hear something about wow, that air conditioner is blowing my pages. In Exodus 3, starting in verse 11, what we've just had happen is God has commissioned Moses. He's told him what to do. Here's Moses' response. He's heard the Word of God, right? Just like you. And God said, I will be with... I'm sorry, verse 11. But Moses said to God, 
Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Don't you love these questions in the Bible that there is no answer? It's leaving you to answer it. I want to ask you, who is Moses to do this? I've got a big resounding one for you. The guy God chose. <laughs> and what were you and James? Chosen by God. For what? To be a first fruits in all of the creation. An example to them. Well, who am I? Why, why should I go help them? Who am I? You're the guy God chose. Well, how do I know He's telling me to do it? Well, why would you just think of it? you think any old lost guy that was walking by would have thought of that? If you want to know whether it came out of the flesh or came out of the Spirit, does it have sacrifice in it? Let's start there. That's a great test. Your flesh has a real hard time laying itself on the altar, but your spirit will throw the flesh up there any moment. <laughs> I'm a living sacrifice to you, God. I just squirm off the altar every time it gets hot. That's where most Christians are. I do not want to do it. When you're trying to decide, is it God's will or not, does it have a component of sacrifice in it? That's a good litmus test. Things that have sacrifice in them rarely come from the flesh. Who am I, he says. Verse 12, And God said, I will be with you. <laughs> Who am I, God, to go do this? Hey, buddy, I'm with you. Whoever thought it was about you anyway. It's about me working through you. How many Christians need to hear this message? And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt... You will, you will worship God on this mountain. <laughs> I love God for this. God, how do I know it's you? How do I know it's going to work? Because when it does work, <laughs> then you'll know it was me. Don't you love that? God, how do I know I can swim? Well, when you jump in and you start flailing your arms and you float, you'll know you swam. That's what he's telling him. God, how do I know that I'll go? Well, I'll be with you. But, you know, what will be the sign? Well, the sign to you will be when you're already out of Egypt and you're worshiping on the mountain. Say, but wait, that requires trust. Oh, yeah, that's what faith is. How do I know that if I serve my wife and I do this consistently in this area, but maybe it's really something that she was supposed to be doing, she won't take advantage of that and I'll be stuck doing it forever. Nobody's ever had that thought. I had a newly wed couple sitting in front of me and when the woman walked out of the room, this was many years ago, there's nobody in here, the guy says, Eric, I hear what you're saying, but I just, man, I got this vision of my wife, 200 pounds heavier than she is right now, sitting on the couch, curlers in her hair, eating bonbons and watching soap operas all day. And I'm scared to death that if I do what you're telling me to do, that is going to happen. I said, well, let's look at what the Word says. It doesn't matter whether that's a legitimate fear or not. What does the Word tell you to do? And are we going to live by the Word or what we're scared of? Moses had all the same problems you do. Watch this next verse. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, <laughs> It hadn't even happened yet. It has not even happened yet. Think about that. Why did I not do what God told me to do? Because I thought if I tried to do that, this might happen. Come on, tell me I'm alone here. Lord, I can't go pray for Adam to get out of the wheelchair because suppose he doesn't get out of the wheelchair. Things that are imaginary, things that have never even happened yet, keep us from doing the will of God. You know what God said would be a sign to us? A sign? By the way, this would be a beautiful octagon, right? Y'all very impressed with my artistic skill here? Yeah, how about that? 
right? And it's got a big S in it. That's a sign. What's it tell you to do? How do you know that? Because you've been there before, right? And there's a consequence for not doing it in there, right? Could be one of those guys ups in a gun. He see you. My, my kids have learned to look for them in the car. Occasionally, they don't have seat belts on. Every once in a while, one of them might even drive down 59 in my lap. I know that's horrible. Y'all flogged me after the service. And they look. And they go, Dad, a policeman! They jump in the back and put on a seatbelt. Probably not the best example. Now that I've committed that to tape, I'll consider repenting. How do you know what to do with that? Because when you get it wrong sometimes, the pain causes you to remember what that sign's for, doesn't it? It's what penalty's all about. God is telling Moses, when you do this and you get it right, it'll serve as a sign for everybody. Our faith is not supposed to be about the penalty for doing it wrong. Our faith is supposed to be that we trusted Him enough to do it right and we're so excited about the result, we're willing to trust Him the next time. That was a sign for Moses. Look at the next sign. Go to uh, the fourth chapter. Starting in verse 1. God's commissioned Moses. He's gone back and forth with God several times about what's going to happen, and God's reassured him. And now in the first verse of the fourth chapter, Moses answered, What if they do not believe me? Moses is reasoning with God, isn't he? Sound like Jews have a little problem with logic sometimes too. What if they do not believe me? He hadn't even gone and tried to present. We're so scared of failure that we fail to try. Isn't that sad? And then we find all kinds of ways to justify it. Moses said, Love you, but I don't speak well. I've never spoken. Don't you love when you talk to somebody and you give the word best you can? Maybe you did it flawed. and Maybe you just really aren't a good example as a Christian. But you love somebody enough to try something and they start with their childhood. What, is that? what does yesterday have to do with today? That was another rhetorical question. What does yesterday have to do with today? Not just a whole lot. You choose each day to be the way that you are. You choose each day. And the Bible says we can all start fresh each day. That means even if Daddy and Mommy pulled your fingernails and toenails off every day of your life, and the last day they did it was Friday, and today's Sunday, it's a new day. You can be different. I'm not talking to you about ignoring obvious things in your life. I'm talking to you about in faith choosing to live differently today than you did yesterday. Saints, it's time to mature. Watch this. Watch what God gives Moses. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me? The Lord did not appear to you. What if that's what they say? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. When Moses says, What if they don't believe what I say? What does God tell him to do? To do something. Watch this. Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. (laughs) I've been scared of a lot of things God told me to do. Piro and I went to this gang bar one time and I was as scared as he was, but, you know, I got just a little different disposition sometimes. Truth is, we were both petrified until we found ourselves doing what God told us to do. Right? Moses ran from this thing that God just told him to do as if God was going to hurt him. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Don't you love God? 
God says, J.J., throw that on the ground. Throws it on the ground. J.J. is petrified. And what's God tell him to do? Come here, boy. Let me kill you. Come here. This probably because when you were two, a leaf blew in the window. It landed on your foot. You've been emotionally scarred ever since. I'm so sorry. Why aren't they having that kind of discussion? God speaks and says, grab it by the tail. J.J. now has a, a real interesting situation on his hand. He's heard God's Word. Nobody else is there to hear it. It's just him. But is he obedient or not? Does he believe God? Well, yeah, God, I believe that if you want me to, I can grab that by the tail. But does he really? Well, we'll see. Does he do it? Moses believed God. How do you know? He reached out and grabbed this snake by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. What is so that they may believe? The words that he said? No. The action that he's going to do. And what is this action? Is it easy for a man to make a snake in his hands, throw it to the ground, pick it up by the tail, and turn it back into a staff? No, it's supernatural. Everything that God asks you to do will be something that is not natural for you to do. Like lay down your pride. Like do what is difficult. Something the natural man could not do. Incidentally, in this case, Moses, the great law bearer, the righteous requirements of God, the ruler that all would be measured by, throw it to the ground where it would appear to be thin. And then he would snatch it back up again and it would become the righteous standard of God. Anybody see an illusion there? If a man is standing like this, holding a staff in his hand, and it becomes a symbol of sin and then returns to a place where it is a standard, do you begin to see an illusion there? Jesus is the staff. He's the righteous standard of God, thrown down by the Father, appearing to be sin. You remember that Jesus said, If I be lifted up, even as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, all men will be drawn to me? Because he wouldn't stay the snake on there. He became a symbol of sin even though he never sinned, for us. And then he was snatched back up to the Father. Everything that you do should communicate Christ in some way. What else did God say? Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. Now, if you're Moses, and the last thing you did resulted in a snake that you were scared of, are you going to be anxious to do the next? Well, if you followed through God all the way to the end and saw it work, yes. He also grabbed that snake by the tail and saw it turn back into a staff. Now his confidence is beginning to grow, huh? Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous as snow. Jesus, at the bosom of the Father, revealed as the hand of God to mankind, but made to be leprous for everybody to see. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. That thing that was made to be leprous before all mankind, looking as if he was cursed by God, a symbol of sin, taken back to the Father, flesh restored, even glorified. Everything that Moses did in obedience as a sign for the people so that they would see something to make them believe, witness Christ in some way. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. If they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become like blood on the ground. 
The Nile was the symbol of life. It was out of fertility. God was accomplishing two things here. He was striking an Egyptian god, making him look to bleed. The other thing is, what was blood and lifeless to the people of the world, the Egyptians, was life-giving water to the people of faith. The Israelites could drink it with no problem. This was another sign of Jesus. It was something that would show the world through their actions something about God. This is what we're called to, saints. Moses was no different than you. But how often has God spoken clearly through His Word that you're to do something? You begin to say, but what if they don't believe and suppose and every theoretical situation in the world comes up? You need to just do it. You need to decide, I'm going to show my faith by what I do. You need to just do it. Turn with me to John 10. You know, Peter wrote some really hard things in his letters. He said, but not that you don't know this. I want you to do this more and more. That by the increase in these things, your calling and election would be made sure. Guys, I am more proud of this little church than any group of believers I've ever been associated with. And I've been in meetings where a woman was healed of AIDS. I've been in meetings and stood next to a woman who was raised from the dead. I've been healed quite a few times in my life and seen others healed. i prayed for people to get baptism in the Holy Spirit more than i prayed for people for salvation. I mean, by the hundreds, if not thousands. And I've never been any more proud of people than what I see right here in this room. But what will cause us to continue to grow in the Lord is not just to take the learning that you get. And I give you some things that, frankly, are hard for you to find anywhere else. But that's not the point. The point is for you to act in a way that is hard to find anywhere else. I heard somebody say that a particular church in Baton Rouge was shallow. That tends to happen when you're a little church and you're envious of the church that also started a little but has just grown wildly. People go, wow, they must be growing because they're watering it down. There's only one way for them to be getting all of those people there. They've got to be doing something wrong the particular church that was being slandered was the healing place. President Bush mentioned it in a speech a few years ago. It started with 12 people in a living room. A man who graduated from Jimmy Swaggart Bible College during the years that it was not popular to do so. You know what the secret to a success is? They encouraged the church to do what Jesus would do. They were the first people that I saw doing huge services, public services, for no real benefit to the church. Everybody say, yeah, but they don't preach the gospel hard. No, they don't have to. They're living it. I said, but did you see those nuts and flakes that are there on Sunday? Well, yeah, they bring the lost on Sunday. Wednesdays and Tuesday nights were the nights for the learning. Sunday was the day for evangelism. I'm embarrassed that I was ever a part of anything that criticized those people because they're doing something that's awesome and I'm proud of them. The President of the United States mentioned a church, not because of the money they give, but because of the public service projects that they do that started in a man's living room with 12 people and out of the 12, all were related in some way. Why couldn't all the other churches in the area glory in that and say, look what Jesus has done? Why do we find the need to tear down others who do what we're afraid to do? We'll read you John 10, then I have a quote for you. You ready for John 10? 
John 10, starting in verse 22. Then, the, then came the Feast of Dedication. I want to teach you about this, but I don't have time. Let me just tell you quick. The Feast of Dedication is Hanukkah. This is what the Jews celebrate today. Anybody that ever said it wasn't biblical didn't know about this verse in John, I guess, because it's mentioned here. Feast of Dedication is after a man named Antiochus Epiphanes killed a pig on the altar of the temple. God did some miracles and helped the Jewish people restore and purify and rededicate them. So for eight days, they light candles. That holiday occurs sometime between November and the end of January every year according to the Jewish calendar. It's not just the Jews' uh, attempt to rip off Christmas. In fact, it predates Christmas. Okay? You want to know, is it biblical? Yeah, it's more biblical than Christmas. Jesus was not born in December. The church that gave us the holiday does not... Well, that's enough of that. Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. And Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews gathered around Him saying, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. We want you to tell us. Speak with your mouth. Open up your mouth and tell us. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The miracles I do in My Father's name speak for Me, but you do not believe because you are not My sheep. How did Jesus say He had told them? By what He did. You said, but that was Jesus. Those were miracles. Anything that you do that the natural man does not do is miraculous. Because there was a time you were a slave and you were led around by your lust and your passions and anything the flesh wanted you to do. And whenever you deny those things and lift up the knowledge of Christ and put it into action, that is miraculous, friends. You know how miraculous it is? It's so miraculous that most Christians don't do it. They talk about what they believe and then they live just as if they were lost. They're on a highway that leads to hell claiming heaven the whole way. I was one of them. Some days I'm still one of them. But God's got hold of me and He showed me how to teshiba, how to repent, to correct my direction every time I identify it. Eric Stevens is quick to do a lot of things. Most of them not good. But I found that His mercy triumphs over judgment in my life because I'm also quick to repent. I will sure change my direction quickly when I realize it's not God. Don't brood in your anger for days. Don't ruin people's days because your pride is so big and so swollen that you didn't leave room for God's Word. Don't do that. I did tell you, you just didn't believe me, he said. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Nobody can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Did you know that Jesus prayed to His Father that just as He and the Father were one, you and He would be one? Jesus' prayer being fulfilled in your life? Think about that one. When people look at you, do they see Jesus? Do they see Jesus so much that they see the Father? Jesus did things perfectly and people still didn't see the Father sometimes in Him. Even though all He did was the Father's work. You're a flawed package. How much of it are you living? Do they see Jesus? See, I want people to see me like an epistle. Paul told his church, he said, guys, I don't need a letter 
you yourselves are a letter written on our hearts from Christ. Looking at you is like looking at a letter because he could see in their actions the very principles that he taught. When you guys are out and about, these in Dallas and you in Houston, or wherever you go in the world, I want people to take note you've been with Jesus. They don't have to read a statement of faith. Nick said something the other night that I don't think he had any idea what a compliment it was. My mom and I talked about it, and the only reason I wasn't boohooing about it is because I was trying to keep my eyes on my kids who were being bad at the moment. He said one of the things that drew him to this church was that he looked at the leadership and he saw the way that the leadership treated their families. Saw how they spoke with their spouses and their children. And that he knew it had to be a real church. That really blessed me. But how sad is it that that would stand out as different? Guys, if you just do what Jesus tells you to do, you'll stand out. You'll stand out like a a star shining in the blackness of space. You will stand out. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone Him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone Me? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are gods? If He called them gods to whom the Word came, and the Scripture cannot be broken... What about the one whom the Father set apart as His very own and sin in the world? Were you set apart? Read you out of James. You were chosen. You're no different than Jesus in this regard. Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy? Because I said, I am God's Son. Hear this statement. Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. Jesus lived God's Word to the point where He could look at everybody and say, Do not believe me. Do not accept my message unless you see me doing what the Father does. How many Christians do you know that can do that? I've met some. I want to be just like them too. There's this little guy from Nepal that had been in prison more times than he could count. And he spent his whole life taking care of orphans. His message that he came all the way to the United States to preach was when pride comes in, the power goes out. When you get in the way, God won't use you. He wouldn't go speak in large churches because he was worried about what that would do to his pride. He wouldn't sleep on the bed you provided for him. He said, beds are different everywhere you go, but the floor's the same. I'm not teaching a life of monk-type behavior. I'm not trying to tell you that it's wrong for you to wear Nike tennis shoes. I'm telling you it's wrong for you to let anything get in the way of you doing God's will. We need to live lives that say, don't believe me unless you see me live it. The happiest I've ever been is to invite men and women from my workplaces to church. But you know why most Christians don't do it? Because their life is different in their workplace than it is in their church place. The hypocrisy has to die. It's time to live it. Jesus says, But I do it. Even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Here's a quote for you. By the way, 2 Corinthians, you want to write this down, 3, 1 through 3, Paul describes people as living epistles. In Romans 1, 1 through 8, he said, Godly, I'm called to call people to the obedience that comes from faith. Then he goes on to praise the people that he's writing to. Your faith is being written about all over the world. It's reported all over the world. You know why that's important? 
What Paul said about their faith producing obedience had become so self-evident that others were discussing it. Isn't that great? Isn't that great when somebody gets born again and everybody talks about what that person believes, but my God, have you seen the change in their life? Oh, it's awesome. Not only are they not hanging around with so-and-so, they are also helping these people and doing this and their life is full of the kind of things God would do. What a testimony. That's the kind of thing that ought to be reported about faith, not great learning. The 26th American president was a Republican. He was a veteran of the Spanish-American War. He wrote more than 35 books on subjects that ranged from warfare to plant species. His political campaign was built around the idea that every American ought to receive a square deal. Everybody ought to receive a fair shake. And one of his more famous quotes is as follows. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. No, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. The man who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without erring or shortcoming. A man who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself for a worthy cause. A man who at the best knows in the end that the triumph of high achievement. And who at worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. So that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. Saints, I don't want to be somebody who had a cold and timid soul and would not get in the arena of Christianity and try. And what you'd understand something. Even this man who had a Reformed Dutch background understood something. There's a big difference between those who talk about it and those who get in there and try. When you get in there and try, you're going to fail sometimes. There is no doubt about it and you need to learn to accept that up front. Jesus will forgive your failures when you try. All you have to do is read the parable of the sheep and goats and you find out He does not, will not, cannot forgive your failure to try. you understand the difference? I had intended to read to you Matthew 25, 14 through 46 and I don't think we have time. More than that, it's a story you should know. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is like a landowner who came out and trusted to people various amounts of silver. Some did things with it and increased and got more. Some were too afraid to try. And so what they had was taken away from them and given to somebody else and they were thrown outside of the kingdom. Come on, saints. What do you think that means? And let me remind you, it was spoken to a population that 100% of them considered themselves saved. Think about that. There is no break between that story and the separation of the sheep and goats. And in the separation of the sheep and goats, he says, hey, come here, my sheep. You clothed me. You fed me. You visited me in jail. When I was outside, you welcomed me. And they said, when? When did we do that? Whenever you did it to the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he pulls up the goats. By the way, sheep and goats look so much alike. The only way you can tell the difference between them at a distance is how they act. 
So he pulls up the goats. And he says, you did not feed me. You did not clothe me. You did not visit me in jail. You did not invite me. And they said, when? He said, whenever you didn't do it for the least of these. He threw them into an eternal fire that had been prepared only for the devil and his angels. You can read that. It's Matthew 25. The difference between those who were sheep and goats was not what they looked like. It's not how they dressed. It's not the creeds that they had. It's what they either did or what they failed to do. I want with all of my heart to place myself squarely in the sheep category. It's not enough simply to look the part. I want to do it with everything that I have in me. I want to just do it. I'm going to read to you Philippians and we close with Philippians. Philippians 1, starting in verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus. you ever seen it done where somebody was not living in a manner worthy of the gospel? you ever been that person? Can you not think of a time in the last week when you wouldn't want that hour on display before Jesus? He said, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. Whatever. Think about Job for a minute. Whatever happens. You just got to report somebody's dead. You just got to report your livelihood is gone. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. We look for every reason to justify what we do. We look for every reason to justify what we don't do, more importantly. This is whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. You know what it means to fight for the faith? It means when it is hard to trust God that a situation is going to work out, your behavior shows that you do trust Him and that it will work out. Oh, yeah, nod your heads. Oh, nod your heads. Yeah, we understand. So what are you going to do about that this week? It's not really trust when He tells you to do something that's easy. It's not really trust when it's perfectly within your capability. It becomes trust when it seems impossible, when all the supposes and what-ifs begin to crowd your mind, but you refuse to let them reason God out. That's when it becomes trust. I love this next part. Contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way. Saints, fear is a natural part of life. What you do with it, though, determines whether you are a success in the kingdom or not. Your fear of how people perceive you of what will happen if you live godly, if you do what He tells you to do in each and every situation, cannot keep you from doing what needs to be done. You ask any successful person, they will tell you they were scared before they accomplished whatever task it was that they were trying. But that fear did not stop them. And it cannot stop you. What if it had stopped Moses? How different would your world be without the books of the Old Testament and therefore having no books for the New Testament to be written from? What if that little sentence that said, I'm afraid, kept him from doing what God called him to do? Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them. Your life should be a sign to people that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. Did you know that you don't have to defend yourself? Not from the lost, not from the saved, not from anybody who opposes you. 
Your job is to live a life that makes people embarrassed to say bad things about you. A sign for them. Wow. Every time I do that to JJ, he doesn't do what I would do. He's godly. That brings conviction upon me. And it brings justification upon him. You need to leave room for God to do those things. This is a sign that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. (laughs) What by God? Them destroyed by God, and you saved by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Whatever your struggle with the flesh is, you need to push out fear and win. God has called us to do great and mighty things for Him. In fact, on His way to the place called Calvary, while bearing a cross, He said we would do great, greater things than He did. That's a tall order, saints. That is a tall, tall order. But I want to do it. If He said it can be done and He chose me for the task and He's given me His instructions, He must believe that it can be done. I don't want to disappoint Him. Do you? Let's just do it. Stand up. Let's pray.